Welcome. Here at Waterstone, we focus on living and loving like Jesus. In practice, this means that we connect with one another, engage in justice, and serve sacrificially. We are so glad that you're here and invite you to join us in person. If you're able to attend weekend services, we're gathering this summer on Saturdays at 5.30 and Sundays for one service at 10. Come early for a light breakfast at 9.15. We look forward to connecting with you. And I just realized we don't have a second service, so I don't have to preach shorter. So this is great. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, uh, it is exciting to continue our series on flourishing uh, today. And um, Larry asked me to preach on parenting, which I'll be honest, um, I am a young parent. I've been a parent for uh, about a thousand days, um, which is another way of saying three years, but it sounds better because it's more. Um, and three years really just means I have no idea what I'm doing. And so preaching a sermon to a room full of people on parenting feels a little daunting. Um, but then I remembered something. Uh, I was a youth pastor for 10 years. And if there is anything parents like, uh, anyone parents like getting advice from more than other people or other parents, it's youth pastors because we have a wealth of knowledge uh, to pull from. That's a joke. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I feel a little bit intimidated by the task of, of talking about parenting. But I really, I would love for us today to actually expand the conversation beyond just um, five tips on how to parent your children better. Because here's the thing, uh, when we do a series like Flourish, when we talk about finding connection in the lonely world, and, and the church dives into issues like parenting or marriage or family or sexuality or singleness, oftentimes it, it can end up being more isolating than encouraging and connecting. Because many of us, have vastly different stories about families that we come from, families that we're currently a part of. Many of us have different challenging stories about parenthood or, or lack thereof. Some of us are, are single and maybe longing for the day that we would have a family of our own or, or maybe are quite content with our singleness, but the church feels like the one place that judges us for that. Now, the truth is we can feel a lot of judgment around marital status and family and parenting styles. And, and so I don't know how helpful it is always to dive into some of these issues. But one thing I do know is that the church is called to reach and raise the next generation for Christ. And that has meaning for any of us, regardless of what status in our family we have, regardless of whether or not we have children. If we are followers of Jesus, if we are a part of his family, if we are disciples to Jesus, then there's a calling placed on each and every one of us to raise and reach the next generation for Christ. And I think that that's a, a timely thing for us to talk about because as we've said before, we know the statistics on how many kids are walking away from the faith. And I could quote those statistics, but for many of you, they're not statistics. They're your children. They're your brothers, they're your sisters, they're your friends who knew Jesus at one point and have left the church. And so what does it mean for us to be a place that, that welcomes and, and creates space for children and for the next generation to know and experience Jesus? And, and here's what I know. 
is that if we are disciples of Jesus, Jesus has a lot to say about how we treat children. I mean, there's stories in, in different gospels about how Jesus was welcoming little children to him and with open arms to pray for them. And his disciples were thinking, why are you wasting your time? Don't spend time with kids. And Jesus rebuked his disciples and said, let the children come to me. And here's what I know about children is they do not want to be around people that they don't like. So there's something about Jesus that drew children to him. What would it look like for the church to be a place that drew children to us instead of pushed them away? And Jesus even says in Matthew 18 that how we treat children, how we engage with children is a reflection of how we would receive, engage, and treat Jesus Christ himself. There's a lot that Jesus, and then there's this weird story about how Jesus says, if you lead a child astray, you should tie a boulder around your neck and throw yourself into the ocean. This is serious business. Jesus cares deeply about children. And so we should too, if we are a part of his family and called to follow him. And so the question is, how do we reach the the next generation? What does it mean to raise up our children to know Jesus? What does it mean for us to engage with the next generation? And when we start talking about generations, there's a lot of baggage that comes up with that. Can can we just be honest? When you start talking boomers versus millennials, or you start talking millennials to Gen X, and and for some reason, no one ever talks about Gen X, but but they're there too, right? They're kind of the middle child of the generations. Yeah, we've got a couple Gen X people. And, and we've got all of these different ways that we see the world. And it can feel like you were just talking past one another. Why do they do it this way? Why do they do it this way for so long? This is the better way. And there's so many challenges to talking about intergenerational connection. And to kind of help us get some, some clarity around that, to, to kind of provide a map of how generations meet, uh, I turned to a theologian, um, a comedian by the name of Nate Bargatze. His special is on Netflix. I would encourage you to check it out. But this is his um, way of explaining the different generations that we come across. The hotels now, they have Chromecast, and you can watch like Netflix in your hotel room. So I'm watching, I get in my room, and I turn it on, and my Chromecast is not working. So I call down to the front desk, and the oldest voice I ever heard answered the phone. <laughs> this guy was a Civil War survivor. I mean, he, he was the age where you just go, thank you for your service. And it's like, was in the Army? You're like, probably, man. I mean, there, there's an age where like, they all had to go at that age, so just say it. Uh, so I tell him, I go, hey, my Chromecast is not working. And I could have just made up a word. I mean, he's never heard of that. I could have said, my beep bop broke. I mean, <laughs> he asked if I was staying at that hotel. That's how conf- he goes, are you staying here? I was like, do you think I've called a front desk from a different hotel room? <laughs> so he goes, look, I don't know what this is, but there's a younger guy here. I'm going to send him up. He'll be able to help you. And I was like, great. So that guy comes up, and he knocks on my door. I open it. He's my dad's age. And I mean, right when I see him, you're like, all right, dude, we don't have to do this. You know, I, was, I mean, I know you've heard of it, but you're not, if I can't fix it, you're not going to be able to fix it. But he's the generation that still wants to give it a try. So <laughs> I got to let him in. So he comes in, comes to my room, sits on my bed, a little too far back, I thought. Uh, <laughs> I just remember like the back of his calves were touching the bed. And I was like, are your feet dangling? How far back are you going to go? Are you cold? Do you want some covers, man? He gets the remote and just starts pressing all the buttons. And I said, I don't know if that's going to do it. And he goes, let's just keep trying it, though. I go, all right. Uh, I'm going to turn the shower on, open a window. Let's try everything. You know, let's just see. Maybe it turns on. Who knows? Maybe it's all connected. 
<laughs> so we can't get it. And he goes, all right. He goes, there's a younger guy. He's about to come to work. And at this point, I'm like, I'm the younger guy, man. I was like, don't, it's all right, dude. I don't, I don't need it. And he goes, no, 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 it's a millennial. And I was like, all right, now we're getting some, you know? <laughs> this is what the millennial does. He was born with technology. He's, he's going to know how to fix this. I was excited. I was like, great. He goes, he, he comes to work in an hour. I go, wonderful. And let me tell you, you know how quick that millennial fixed it? Well, I'll never know, because he just didn't come to work that night. So... <laughs> All right, all right. As a millennial, some of you laughed a little too hard at that last point. That doesn't feel quite fair. He was getting you guys pretty good, too. <laughs> and when you start talking about generational differences, I mean, those challenges are real. There's a huge cultural gap between how different generations see the world. And when you talk about an intergenerational community, like a church, where you have boomers and Xers and millennials and all the way down to Gen Z and the next generation that hasn't even been named yet, what does it mean for us to relate to one another in such a way where, where the things that we have been through as a generation don't cause people to, to leave the faith, but actually encourage them to follow Jesus more deeply? You see, if we are disciples of Jesus, reaching the next generation, raising the next generation is, is central to who we are as a community. And it means it has to transcend those cultural differences. It's why at church we do things like child dedications, where young families step onto a stage with their newborn babies, and we as a community make a commitment to that family, to that child, that we will do our part to help them experience life with Jesus. That's no small thing. And as a youth pastor, there's one thing that I kept coming across in so many of my studies. And it's this, if, if you want to know whether or not a child will stay in the faith um, after they leave the home, there's two key indicators. And the first is that they have parents or caretakers that actively live out their faith, that they, they exhibit what they believe. But the second key indicator is that they have a secondary influence, someone outside of the home who shows an interest in their faith journey. Not in what they do for sports or not what grades they get in academics, but how they are following Jesus as an elementary school child or as a middle school child or as a high schooler. A key indicator is whether or not the community of faith shows an interest in the next generation's faith. That's a huge calling for us to step into. And what does it look like for us to try to reach and raise the next generation for Jesus? I, I would want to offer just three ways that I think we can step into that space to, to raise our own children uh, or, or the children of our community to experience and know Jesus as their king and as their savior. And so the first one, um, it, we're going to start in a place that you may not expect. But the first place that I, I think we can step into to reach the next generation is that we need to recognize that our family of origin deeply affects our present. I think one of the best things that we can do for the next generation is, is recognize how deeply we have been formed by our past. Scripture seems to indicate that there is a power the past holds over our present, that the things that we have been through impact the next generations that follow after us. The decisions we make, the choices we make, the way we interact with the world has a, a direct impact to those generations that follow after us. This is what it says in Exodus. 
says, then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him, and him being Moses, and proclaimed his name. This is where God comes down to Moses at Mount Sinai, and this is the first time God has revealed who he is to his people. This is the first time God has self-disclosed who he is. So he proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation. Now that, if I'm being honest, the first time God discloses who he is to his people feels a little bit like, um, well, I probably shouldn't say what I was going to say, but it feels a little bit chaotic. It feels a little confusing. Is God vindictive? I mean, if God is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, why does he punish to the third and fourth generation? I mean, could you imagine if, if your child, let's say, uh, stole a cookie and you're like, hey, you know what? Not only are you going to pay for it, but your kids are going to pay for it and their kids that doesn't feel like justice or goodness or graciousness or, or being slow to anger. What most theologians would say is that the, the best translation for that word punish is not that, that God is vindictively trying to punish people, but that the things we do, the actions we take tend to repeat themselves. And so generations will experience the trauma and brokenness and, and, and sin of the previous generations. That, that there's something in our DNA and in our community, in our sociology, that how we behave impacts those who come behind us. And so if a generation in, in a family or in a community tends to, to deal with things like alcoholism or addiction or depression or suicide or unstable marriages or unwed pregnancies, mistrust or unresolved conflicts, family patterns almost inevitably play out in the present relationships and behavior. We see this throughout scripture in some of the different families that we come across. We just did a study on Genesis. And Abraham's family is a great case study on this. You look at Abraham, and he struggles with lying. So he lies two different times about his wife Sarah to protect himself to Pharaoh. His son has a relationship that's full of deceit with his wife. And then his son, he just lies to everyone, and his name actually means deceiver can see the patterns playing themselves out. Or, or the favoritism. Abraham showed favoritism to his son Ishmael over Isaac. And then Isaac shows favoritism to, to his son Esau. And then his son Jacob shows favoritism to Joseph. Or, or we see that their poor marriages play out. And that Abraham had a child outside of his marriage with Hagar. And Isaac, he has a terrible relationship, again, full of deceit with his wife. And Jacob has two wives and two con. You just see the patterns playing themselves out. Because all of us are products of who raised us and how we were raised, good and bad. My wife is studying uh, in a PhD program, and um, she's studying human development. And one of the, the studies that she came across that, that's fascinating to me is that children tend, oh, um, children tend to, to um, inherently kind of take on character traits of their parents. You might say, well, yeah, sure, but, but it goes deeper than that. This particular study found, listen to this, this I think this is so fascinating, that, that there are studies that are showing that the way a parent rocks their baby to comfort them 
mimics the pattern, pace, and rhythm that they themselves were rocked as infants. That there's something inherently unconsciously placed within us about how we were treated as infants. No one teaches us how to rock or, or, or comfort a child, but we inherently intuitively do that the way that we received care and comfort. And for many of us, that's a, an incredibly good thing. We were shown love and safety and security as children that, that we can then inherently pass on to our children. But for some of us, these kinds of studies remind us of, of the ways that we were not loved, that we were not cared for, the ways that we were not provided with the, the security that children deserve. We were not protected. And, and so many of us walk with hurts and limps and scars for the rest of our life because things that, that maybe even happened to us before we were even aware. See, no matter how good of a family we grew up in, there was some sort of dysfunction or hurt or trauma. And I have not been a parent for very long, but one thing I have learned very quickly is that children, I mean, this is even outside of, of parenthood, children have this very innocent way of bringing up all the junk that we haven't dealt with. I mean, there's no one who is honest as a child. You, you start losing your hair, a child will point that out to you in pretty obvious way. You start gaining a little, I mean, they, they will just push on some of those things, those deep insecurities, but it goes deeper than some of those, those traumas, those, those childhood things that, that you had to wrestle with. Children have a way of bringing that junk out. And if we don't deal with that, if we don't recognize how our family of origin impacts our present, then we are, are very likely to pass those patterns on to our children. One of the best things that we can give the next generation following us is to find healing from our own wounds and brokenness and trauma, the ways that we have experienced dysfunction so we don't have to pass that on to the next generation. To end the cycles that we experienced. But here's the, the good news is that not only do we have to just be honest with our, our past in order to reach the next generation, honest about the wounds and, and the, the struggles and the brokenness, the traumas that we experience, but, but the gospel points us to a, a deeper truth, that, that our family of origin does not have to determine our future. That because of the gospel, because of what Jesus Christ has done, because of his work on the cross, all of that trauma, all of that baggage, all of the things that we carry with us in life can begin to be healed in Jesus' name. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world. Whoop. Sorry, I'm, I'm a slow reader. <laughs> reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Is that not good news? And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. 
God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, because of Christ's work on the cross, if we we give our allegiance to him, if we become a part of God's family, then Christ has the power to make us new creations. The sins of our past do not have to determine our future. The cycles of sin and brokenness do not have to continue. We can become new creations. And now that does not mean that everything is just magically fixed when you become a Christian. Christians still need therapy deeply. But in Christ Jesus, some of these patterns can begin to be undone. And they do not have to determine our future. One of the greatest gifts that my dad gave to me happened before I was even born. See, my dad grew up in a home with an alcoholic father. I don't say that out loud very often, and I certainly don't say it very often through a microphone. But he grew up in an environment that no child should have to grow up in. It was brutal, and I don't even know most of the details. When my dad became a believer later in high school, he made a decision that his father's patterns of abuse and alcoholism ended with him. And he chose not to drink a drop of alcohol for the rest of his life. That was, was his decision, what he felt was best for his family. Now, there was still plenty of trauma and generational impact because of my grandfather's decisions that we are still working through. But because of the choice my dad made, because of the work of Christ in him, I did not have to grow up in a home with an alcoholic father. You see, for many of us, the best gift that we can give the next generation is to say, this sin, this brokenness, this pattern dies with me. And then we carry that on to the next generation and and we, we take the next step forward, whether it is your biological children or the children of our community. The patterns can end with us because of Christ. We do not have to continue in the same patterns of sin and brokenness if we believe that our family of origin does not determine our future because of what Christ has done. And so three things. We, we can acknowledge our past and the way that our, 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 our origins and our, our families and, and our past have influenced our present. But, but because of Christ, we do not have to live with the deterministic mindset that because of who our parents were, that's who we will be. Because of how we were raised, that's how we will engage with the next generation. But, but it's got to go a step beyond that. What does it mean to actually engage the next generation? Well, Paul says in that passage that if we are in Christ, if we have been reconciled to God, if our sins have been dealt with, then we become ambassadors of that message to everyone we come in contact with, including raising and reaching the next generation. That that we are ambassadors, we are representatives of an invisible God. We are his visible representatives to the next generation and to our children. Now, I don't know about you, but have you ever tried to talk to a child about God and just wondered, where do I start? Like, what stories do I jump into first? Like, we we often like to start with a story like Noah's Ark. And then we get into it and we're like, oh my gosh, this is so many things that I don't know. Like, is that the story we want kids introduced to? Like, where do we start? I I was telling Camden, my daughter, recently a a story about where God heals um, a a girl who was sick and and, and had died. And God, Jesus raises her. And we get to the end of the story and she just says, why? (laughs) What? (laughs) 
three. You can't ask me why. Like, just, it's a good story. Like, it can be so hard to know where we start with, with how we are this ambassador to the next generation. What does it mean to teach kids about who God is? What does it mean to represent Christ to the next generation? I think a place we can start is where God himself started with his family and his children. And I want to go back to that passage in Exodus. Because as I said earlier, this is the first time God self-discloses to his people who he is. He comes to his children and he says, this is what I want you to know about me. This is who I am. And notice what he says. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. I mean, my best guess for where we start this conversation, it's not all encompassing, but but isn't it worth starting the place that God reveals who he is to his children? And what if we took some of these things to heart in our relationship with our own children or the children in our community that we can influence and impact for the kingdom? And what if we displayed some of these characteristics of God to the next generation? What if we were compassionate like God is compassionate? You know, the the root word of compassion in Hebrew, it's tied to this idea of of a mother's um, thoughts and and care of a, a child in her womb. That the tenderness that a mother feels for her unborn child is how God feels about his children, God's compassion. It's also the place where we most often see God moved in deep emotion. In the Psalms, when it, when it says that God is compassionate, it usually comes after his children are in plight or there's something wrong, they're suffering. God hears their cry and is moved in compassion to do something about it. What if we embodied God's tenderness and gentleness with our children and the next generation? What if instead of our relationships sometimes being characterized by defensiveness about the way we did things, instead we were compassionate and gentle as they try to figure it out on their own? goes on to say that God is gracious. And this is a gift that's undeserved, but it's also a gift that's given in delight. We sometimes miss that. That that God delights in giving graciously and generously to his children. What if in our relationship with children in the next generation, we, we delighted in them, not always giving them what they deserve, but showing them generosity and grace. What if the the next generation experienced a a spirit of of gracious generosity that allowed them to see God not as something that's vindictive or vengeful, but gracious and gives us things that we don't deserve? It goes on to say that God is slow to anger, which actually isn't what it really says in the Hebrew. What it actually says in the Hebrew is that God is long-nosed, which is a really weird translation. How do we get from long-nosed to God being slow to anger. Well, in in the Hebrew, to say that someone is is kind of hot-tempered or quick to anger is to say that that they're hot-nosed. That was kind of the expression they had. And so saying that someone is is long-nosed means that it takes them a long time to get angry, that they are patient. 
God is telling his children in this moment that he is slow to anger, that he gives second chance and third chances and fourth chances. The fascinating thing about when God is revealing himself here on on Mount Sinai is the people are worshiping another God at the foot of the mountain. As they are disobeying, as they are um, rebelling against God, as they are disappointing that relationship, God is telling them, I will be slow to anger, patient, and give you multiple chances. And that is a hard thing to live out with children, isn't it? I mean, they can press your buttons. They can, they can frustrate Patience is one of the hardest things to come by. What if the church was a place where as young children and young teenagers are trying to figure out life and making mistake after mistake, we responded with a spirit that was was slow to become angry, that gave them space to make those mistakes. It goes on and it says that, that God is not only compassionate and gracious and slow to anger, but that he is abounding in love. He is this, it's this deep personal sense of care, regardless of condition or worth. Our love can come and go. God's love is consistent and unwavering. What if our children and the next generation experienced such an extravagant love from us? that they just knew they were safe and secure in the community of God. You know, I think one of the challenges that we often have with generations is that, that when it comes down to it, there's a lot of judgment between boomers and, and Xers and millennials and Gen Z because we're all doing life differently. And we don't understand the worldview of the people coming before us or after us. And so there's kind of just this spirit of judgment. of I don't understand how they could get there. I don't understand how they could vote that way. Or I don't understand how they could believe this. And what if, instead of a, a spirit of judgment, you see, you see, I don't think the opposite of judgmentalism is, is tolerance. Some would maybe make that argument, but tolerance doesn't go far enough. I think the opposite of judgment is curiosity. Like, what if when we experience things that, that kind of cause our eyebrows to raise and, and our heart to maybe skip a beat when we encounter something, and then, what if we were just curious? How did you get there? Why do you think that? What experiences have led you to this place? Here's what I've found, is that most of the time when people begin questioning their faith or wandering off the path, eventually they will come back if they feel like the church was a safe place to explore those things. But you know what drives them away quicker than anything? Feeling judged for those questions. I mean, it's kind of like with my daughter Camden. She's three years old and she loves to color. And she's learning how to color in the lines. And it's going all over the place. She gets it sometimes. And like if I just harped on her every single time she got out of the lines, she would not want to color anymore. It would lose all of its joy. And sometimes we have that approach with God. He's in a box. And if you go out one step out, if you just miss the, the line by an inch or a centimeter, then you are off course. We're going to judge you. What if we just gave people room and space to explore, trusting the spirit to lead them in truth and wisdom? And then it goes on to say that God is faithful stable, reliable. His support is steady when things are chaotic. He's trustworthy. What if in a chaotic and complex and confusing world, the church was a space where the next generation felt like they could be supported and stable in the midst of the chaos around them? 
What if we could just offer that gift to the next generation? Paul David Tripp, he's a a theologian and an author of a lot of different um, parenting books. Um, And I want to read a quote about his view of parenting and this idea that that we're ambassadors to our children. But I think it goes beyond parenting to, to all of our relationships and ways we interact with people. But he says, in the lives of your children, you are the look of God's face. You are the touch of his hand. You are the tone of his voice. You must never exercise authority in an angry or impatient way. You must never exercise authority in an abusive way. You must never exercise authority in a selfish way. Why? Because you have been put into your position as a parent to display before your children how beautiful, wise, patient, guiding, protective, rescuing, and forgiving God's authority is. What if our relationship with the next generation was characterized by these quality and characteristics of God? What if when, when the next generation looked at the church, they saw this face of God? What might be different in our families and in our friendships and in our relationships and in our community if we could learn to embody this idea that how we treat, how we raise and reach the next generation is by embodying the same grace and love and kindness and goodness and patience that God has given and shown us. That's the challenge before us as the church. And I think it's worth saying that that Jesus is the ultimate embodiment of these family values. Because that's really what we're talking about when we talk about this. Is that we are called to embody the values of the new family that we are a part of. And what would it look like for us to step into some of those spaces, to be honest about our past and the ways that we've been broken and experienced hardship and trauma? to recognize that that does not have to dictate and determine our future, that we can step outside of those things because of what Christ has done so that we can show the next generation, our children and the children of this community, how compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness is our God. Throughout this series, as we close the the services and the messages, we want to take time uh, for prayer. Uh, Because we know that when you start talking about family, man, it can bring up all sorts of stuff. Um, I know it does for me. And so we want to step into a time of prayer to close the service. And if you would like someone to pray for you, we will have stations and people ready to pray, pastors and and elders and and other congregants ready to pray with you. But here's the the thing that I would say about that, is that if you are, sometimes we we kind of make this too big of a deal in our head. We we feel like we can only go if something is catastrophic is happening, if our world is falling apart. And then that makes us feel like judged that if if I go up, then they're going to know something's really, really wrong with me. And everybody's going to look at me when I step into this space. We don't create these moments of prayer so that people feel judged, and we don't create these moments of prayer so that people can feel like everyone's looking at them. We create these moments of prayer so that we can find connection in the lonely world, so someone can say, you're not alone in this. 
No matter how tired you are as a parent, no matter how discouraged you are about your station in life, no matter how, how, how maybe embarrassed or, or the shame or guilt you feel that your, parent, your kids have walked away from the faith. And we want to step into these spaces as a community, embodying these values so that people find connection, love, and healing from the brokenness that they've experienced. And so wherever you're at today, if you want someone to pray for you, I would encourage you to go. Don't be shy. Don't be, don't be ashamed. Step into this space and invite God's spirit, a part of this community. Invite someone else to know what you're going through. Invite them to pray with you for someone else that's on your heart. Let me pray, and then we'll step into the time of prayer together. Heavenly Father, God, so many of us have stories that when we hear that the church is going to be talking about family or parenting or, or marriage, we're tempted to just stay home, to, to just not show up because the, the pain is too much. Uh, we're afraid church is a place that we won't be understood. We're, we're afraid of, of, of people knowing that, that we showed up today in an argument with our spouse and, and that they'll see through the facade that we're trying to present. We know that for some coming into this space, it takes every ounce of courage they have to get out of the car and walk in alone because they're afraid someone will wonder why they're still single and if there's something wrong with them. God, we know that there are so many ways around family and, and dynamics and dysfunction and, and things that we work through that, that can cause so many lies in our hearts and in our minds. God, I pray for this time as we worship you that you would rest heavily on this place. God, I pray that your spirit would move amongst us to provide healing, that we could be honest about the things that we have been through and the freedom that we have in you so that we could reach and raise the next generation to encounter the living God, to know that Jesus Christ is worth pursuing. May we embody that to the people around us. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.